city. It's the Gary Knowles Show. And now, your host, Gary Knowles. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. I'd like to welcome you to this program. From all over the world, people are seeking answers to important questions about our health, disease, how can we prevent being infected by COVID? What do we do if we have COVID? Or what if we have influenza? What can we do to live longer and more vital and happy lives? That's what we focus on. That's empowering. Every day we share that. Monday to Friday, noon to 1 Eastern Standard Time, and Tuesdays on the most listened show I do, the Progressive Commentary Hour. That's Tuesday 7 to 8, and if you miss it, go to the archives. Now, today, you're going to learn from the Buck Institute of Research on aging how NAD, one of the single most important nutrients you can take into your system, can help slow down the aging process, help your metabolism. It functions on many levels, but I have other studies today, including what happens when you read a book outdoors versus indoors. Interesting, and it'll give us more opportunity to spend more time outdoors. So we have a lot to share on health, but also today we are at a tipping point when it comes to, and this is really good news, where your mainstream orthodox physician, in this case a woman who is an MD, a PhD, a professor, a research scientist, and one of the leading spokespersons of helping information get assimilated in meta-analysis with the World Health Organizations. She's all those. And very orthodox, pro-vaccine, but she's talking about ivermectin. First place you ever heard of ivermectin was where? Right here on the show, right? How much does it cost? I thought it cost five cents. I was wrong. Uh, I was almost 100% wrong. It's three pennies, three cents. It's safe. Uh, it's been in use for a long time. And now there are over 40 studies. But she was the first one in the whole world to do a, uh, to do a meta-analysis. And mind you, she does meta-analysis for World Health Organization and the Cochrane uh, Collaboration, etc. And she said, this works better than anything else. Oh, she also said that we should be giving packages of this to every citizen of the world with vitamin C, vitamin D3, zinc, and ivermectin. Very important. Doxycycline also is possible. In any case, she's talking about the statistics. Listen to what she's saying. She's telling you the truth. I have independently confirmed, and we've actually shared on this program, What's your chance if you're sick? If you're sick and you take ivermectin, you have an 80% chance when in a, uh, of not dying. 80%. There's no medication that could do that. You saw how many people died when they went into the hospital, were on respirators, almost all of them. But if you take ivermectin in a hospital, your chances of surviving are tremendous. But if your chances of getting contracting COVID if you're a nurse, a physician, anyone, a dietitian, a dentist, and you're working with the public, 
If you take this prophylactically, you would help prevent even contracting COVID. So this is really important. She's saying it, not me. But this was the first place where we said, let's start looking at other types. Now that's one. Another one is she's being interviewed and she's saying uh, the science. So for those of you who say, well, I want to hear the science, good for you. She's going to share you the science, share with you the science because she is the person who did it. She's not reporting on other people. She's reporting on what she assembled in a meta-analysis based on what she was finding. And then she talks about how she reached out to the prime minister, Great Britain, and the head of all of medicine and the, and the health service and the medical community and all the major medical magazines. Nobody paid attention. Why? That takes us to another video of a group of medical doctors from around the world who go to a, a source um, on uh, science-based medicine. Now, mind you, these are all orthodox doctors and scientists. No one alternative here. And boy, do they lay it out. Why would you not give someone, the whole world, ivermectin, instead you're waiting on an experimental vaccine to give you results and we're seeing all these side effects and it's it's not even a vaccine, not based on how it's being used in the body, rather it's a medical device. In any case, they really lower the hammer on it. But then I save the best for last, and that is the doctor, the old doctor in the chair. All right, you see him, he's in a, this rocking chair. He's practiced medicine for over 50 years. He's extraordinarily prolific, an author of over 100 books, hundreds of articles. He's one smart person. Well, he, he little, he lit, I've seen him in dozens, but this one, about nine minutes in, he just stops. Um, and he just, he's rubbing his eyes. He's clearly distressed. He's crying. I've never seen that with him. And then, <laughs> and he just gives a boom, boom uh, to, uh, to the uh, top medical doctor in Great Britain. Oh, and by the way, a separate study I just read showed that the top medical advisory group that determines how to approach COVID, 10 of the members are all connected with pharmaceutical companies. What gross bias. You're going to hear all this today. So you've got a lot of empowering information that can save your life. So we've taken a negative topic, COVID, distressing and apocalyptic to some, and we're now showing you there's a positive way to approach it. So positive energy, positive information, life-saving information coming at you. That's our show. So we begin with NAD. Now, according to the news um, out of this, um, out of California, the nicotinamide, D9, uh, what is called dinucleotide, that's NAD, it's one of the central redox factors and enzymatic cofactors that function in many different ways inside your cell, and including your metabolic pathways, um, your DNA metabolism. Um, the effects on your cell are directly related to how much NAD you have. Well, when you're young, you have a lot of NAD. As you get older, it diminishes. By the time you're 40, you're substantially reduced in NAD. 
Um, every cell in your body has it, but you need it, just like you need your mitochondria, the energy factories. So by taking the supplements, about 50 milligrams to 100 milligrams, you're really supercharging your cells. And what it's showing is that uh, it's a coenzyme for helping the, the whole body cleanse and rebuild. And that means it slows down the DNA damage, it engages in DNA repair. That's what's important. Repairing the damage to your DNA is going to keep you alive longer, keep you more youthful longer. So, get your NAD and your DNA that is older and more damaged will begin to repair. And it also helps with cellular senescence and immune cell function. So it literally is that booster to your immune system. Now we know other things that will boost your immune system. For example, probiotics and prebiotics. That's why having a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar is so good for you in the morning. I like to take apple cider vinegar, a little manuka honey, some lemon juice, fresh squeezed, and ginger juice. Now, you juice ginger by getting a piece of ginger. And I'm noticing now you can go into a store and they have little boxes, little paper boxes of ginger. You take a piece about, um, I'm holding up my fingers if you're watching, I'm video streaming by the way, um, about uh, six, six, seven inches like this, and you juice it, it gives you about a teaspoon of ginger juice. Now that's powerful. I add that in. Then I dilute all that with green apple, and, uh, and that gives me about 12 ounces. You drink that in the morning, wow. You're alkalizing your system. That will help you with arthritis, rheumatism, joint pain. That'll help you with digestion. It's a detoxifying. It can help the liver. It can help stimulate enzymes. It's great on all levels. That's the way everyone should start the day. And I do that before I go out for my workout. So that's the newest information on how to live a longer life by repairing and restoring your DNA levels, and that can help you live a longer time. Now, the newest study, and this is a study from the University of California at San Diego, shows that intermittent fasting, and intermittent means that I eat my last meal, try to, it can change, uh, but normally around 5 o'clock. And then I like to fast until about 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock the next morning. So I'm getting anywhere from 13 to 15 hour intermittent fast every day. Then on the weekends, I generally juice all day long and or make smoothies. Well, let me tell you something. We can now show absolutely unequivocally with massive amounts of scientific evidence in the peer review literature. You can see for yourself. You can go to the Library of Medicine and you will see that fasting, intermittent fasting, is the one thing that all anti-aging scientists in the world agree can extend your life. It can help move peristalsis, the wave-like rhythmic movement that forces food through the intestine and out the body. The general rule is for every amount of nutrition coming in, the byproduct of that has to come out. Dead cells, bacteria, and ligocellulose or different fibers, so you keep clean. The cleaner the intestine, the colon, 
the rectum, the large and small intestine, the, the, trans, the trans intestine, all that has to have food moving through it. When you're eating meat, sugar, refined carbohydrates, you are congesting all that. You're slowing it down. Just visualize this. A healthy plant-based diet with lots of clean liquids, water and juices, and teas, you're going about 70 to 75 miles an hour on a highway. The moment you get rid of the fiber and you start having non-fibrous or low-fiber foods like meat, chicken, fish, dairy, cheeses, you're going five miles an hour on the same highway. That means that the toxin that is in that food, staying in the mucous membranes, the very sensitive membranes of the wall of the intestine, first it congests and pushes up the little villi. There are millions of tiny little villi in the duodenum and other parts of the intestine. That's what absorbs nutrients. That's what actually takes the nutrients from what should be um, a chyme, a C-H-Y-M-E, that's like a soup. And that's how food should enter the intestine, like a soup, not in chunks. Remember, the stomach does not have teeth. Full mastication, take your time, chew your food, insalivate it, because under the tongue, right there, there's two little holes. And all day long, there's a secretion of amylase and tylen, two strong enzymatic processes that are breaking down the different food to make it more compatible with the hydrochloric acid, pepsin, uh, and all the other enzymes in the stomach that will, through hydrolysis, through heat and, and the acids, take your food and make it into like a, a soup. Then it goes in the intestine. And that's ideal. That's when you're getting maximum absorption. That's really good, very healthy. But when you're choo-choo, swallow, choo-choo, swallow, drink cold, drink hot, swallow, what a mess. What a mess. Overeating, you're bulging out the stomach. Now the stomach doesn't know what to do. So to save you, it starts to purge. A little flap at the end of this pear-like stomach opens up. It is called the pyloric sphincter versus the cardiac sphincter. That's the flap that opens allow the food to go in. This is the pyloric and allows food to go out. And there's just too much. The liquid has diluted your hydrochloric acid. So then it goes in the intestine only partially digested. That means that we're overfed and undernourished because we're not getting proper absorption. You have to have all those millions of little villi hanging down and they grab that nutrient, nutrient goes in, goes through, there goes in the liver, gets metabolized and goes out and is used by the body. Wonderful process. We've never invented a machine that is as good as our digestive system, never. So that's the reason I want you to take your time and eat, chew thoroughly, don't have all those liquids with a meal that dilute the stomach, don't eat until you're full, and then fast. Because when you do that, that intestine's clean. You're moving food through, and you're not gonna have that autotoxic reaction of having constipation. Ask someone who's got constipation, how do you feel? Don't feel good. How do you feel when you're regular, clean? How do you feel when you have a meal that's light and you don't go and pass out in a coma and, and drool for the next two hours? No, you're up and about. And by the way, it's always good to go for a light walk after a meal. It stimulates digestion.
Now, um, what we found is in this study from the University of California at San Diego, this is new research that shows for the first time that time-restricted feeding improves insulin levels and reduces tumor growth in mice in this uh, study. So here's the takeaway message. In order for you to help reduce breast cancer risk, especially if you're overweight, intermittent fasting. Good. Well, I'm looking at the clock and we're running a little late, so we're going to take a break. When we come back from the break, we're going to go to uh, two women doctors, both doctors, uh, but one's an MD, PhD, professor, scientist, one of the top in the world, talking about ivermectin. I believe that you all should be stocking up on ivermectin prophylactically. It's safe, it's inexpensive, but most importantly, it works. There's no need for a vaccine. There's no need for expensive pharmaceuticals. And by the way, one of the videos you're going to see after that shows that's exactly why we're not being told by Anthony Fauci and others to use ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or some of the other six or seven commonly used FDA-approved drugs because no one's making money from it. But he goes into great detail of who's making money and how they make money and how they can they control the whole narrative. You have no input. Also... Uh, last mention, my webinar on Sunday, starting at noon, will be the most comprehensive I've done. I, <laughs> last night, I looked at my outline, and it's about uh, 30 pages long. So I've got a lot to share. Best places to live. What kind of RV should you be looking at if you're interested in an RV? Rental or buying? Best Should you rent or buy home, property, farms or ranches, or not, none of the above? all the best communities to live in, best place around the world, what you should not do in the future to get off, uh, to stay on their grid, to stay under their influence, their meaning corporate interest. All this is going to be discussed in depth, and I'm going to take your questions as always. I don't know how long it's going to last, but any of you who have been to my webinars know they could last for three, four, five, six, seven hours in one case. But it'll be a lot of information you will not want to miss. It can impact your future. All right? Go to prn.fm. Now, let's and hear two women physicians talking about ivermectin. I have Dr. Tess Laurie joining me. Dr. Laurie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Dr. Laurie has a medical degree and PhD. She grew up and studied in South Africa doing clinical medicine and research. Dr. Lori is the founder and director of the Evidence-Based Medical Consultancy in Bath, UK. Dr. Lori, what brought you to doing your in-depth and systematic review and meta-analysis of ivermectin? Jennifer, my company does evidence synthesis routinely to support clinical practice guidelines. It's our core business. I do no industry-sponsored work at all and all our work is for nonprofit organizations. One of the most common formats of our work is performing Cochrane reviews and Cochrane reviews underpin a number of recommendations in the NICE guidelines and WHO guidelines and guide, clinical practice guidelines around the world. Um, I 
first was aware of the issue around ivermectin and its usefulness for COVID when I saw Dr. Pierre Corey's appeal in front of the US Senate from the 8th of December, but I only saw it on the 26th of December. And when I saw it, it struck me uh, in, in a couple of different ways. One was it just struck me very odd that a doctor was having to beg in front of politicians for a medicine to heal his patients that he knew would heal his patients. Secondly, it reminded me of my work in South Africa as a doctor, because when you work in low resource settings, you're constantly aware that there are treatments that would save your patients, would help your patients and ameliorate their disease, but you don't have access to them. So my heart sort of went out to Dr. Corey. I really empathized with him. I recognized that desperate doctor in him. And wanting to do the best for his patients. So I, I thought, well, let me get the review that he's written and evaluate it. So I got the review and I was impressed with how thorough it was. It really covers everything from mechanisms of action. It has country case studies. It has, it had a whole lot of observational and randomized controlled trials that they'd collected, you know, and clearly they'd been monitoring ivermectin for some time. The problem with it was that it didn't have any meta-analyses well, it had one small meta-analysis, but it hadn't actually pulled the data for the, for the important outcomes. At the conclusion of the review was that ivermectin, there was evidence of a strong effect, and they called upon international agencies to devote resources to confirming these findings. But because it was just after Christmas and before New Year, I knew um, my experience with organizations in general was that everybody's on holiday during that time. And uh, I thought, well, if what Dr. Corey is saying is true, then there's an urgency to this and thousands of people are dying every day. So I can do this, I can help. So I thought, let me just do this evidence synthesis and see what it shows. So I got all the studies that they had included in their review. I assessed them all for risk of bias. So this is a routine procedure assessing studies for risk of bias and deciding which are of too low quality and that would introduce bias. So I did this, I selected 15 studies that were the higher quality out of 27 and at lower risk of bias. And I did a meta-analysis for the main clinical outcomes because the outcomes that matter to people and doctors, to the public and doctors are clinical outcomes. The outcomes like death, am I gonna die? if I get COVID and I'm in hospital and I've got mild disease or severe disease, it's how long am I going to stay in hospital? Am I going to be admitted to ICU? Will I need mechanical ventilation? That sort of stuff. And then preventing disease, you want to know if I take this tablet, what are my chances of, uh, and I'm a healthcare worker or I'm exposed to COVID-19, what are my chances of getting an infection, you know, if I'm, if I'm exposed. So these are the things that are important. So I extracted data from the studies on those clinical outcomes and I was so excited with what I found you know I just when I saw the data I just thought I have to communicate this as soon as possible when we pulled all those studies together on their own they don't look like much when you pull them you see that if for hospitalized patients if you're in the ivermectin group of those studies you had a 1.3% chance of dying if you were in hospital, which doesn't sound great. But if you're in the control group, 
you had an 8.3% chance of dying. So clearly, you know, it was just so clear and, this, and it was consistent as well. Using the statistical test that we do, there was a consistency across the studies. They were all saying the same thing. There's a certain amount of caution one would apply. And because there is a standard operating procedure for grading the evidence that you get in meta-analyses. Now, I use the, the operating procedure I always use, which is the WHO standard operating procedure. I evaluated the evidence according to that procedure, and it came to an assessment of moderate certainty. Now, there's also a standard way of interpreting evidence. So moderate certainty evidence means that the effect is probably, we use the word probably in the interpretation, whereas if it was low certainty, we'd say it may, and if it was high certainty, we say it does. Um, so there was moderate certainty evidence that ivermectin reduce the risk of death by 80% or 83%. And the, the effect estimate range was 67 to 92%. So my conclusion was that it's not a question of whether ivermectin reduces deaths. It's just a question of by how much. So is it 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%? Yes. Maybe a large randomized controlled trial would be able to pinpoint exactly the percentage. But who would you get to take part in such a randomized controlled trial when the evidence of its reduction in deaths is so clear? So anyway, so there I was with this evidence and I was just stunned and I thought I have to communicate this as soon as possible. So this was the Sunday night. So I did that work between the 26th of December and the 3rd of January. And I just worked night and day, night and day to get that. And I thought I was just going to do that. I was going to get it to the prime minister's office. He was gonna say, thank you, we must get ivermectin as soon as possible. And, um, and then I could get on with my, my usual work. <laughs> it didn't happen, unfortunately. The next day, I emailed ministers of parliament, I emailed the health ministry, I emailed journals. Uh, it was just like everybody was asleep, nobody responded to emails, and um, the days were moving on. You know, so and I was very aware that every day people were dying unnecessarily. Instead of the number of people dying that were dying, there could just be 20% of those number dying. So for every 10 people dying, there were eight dying unnecessarily, something like that. So I started as the days were on because of my clinical background, I, f I felt. Um, I felt a huge moral duty and concern that I was kind of holding this information and not being able to get it out. So on the Thursday evening, the 7th, in fact, it was about 11 o'clock, I just thought I've got to do something. So I did that video appeal for the Prime Minister. And I'm just still waiting for a response. It's not, in fact, it's not that I've just been waiting, so I've continued to work. So what I did was then I wrote what I usually do for WHO, which is when they're trying to make a recommendation on a treatment, they hold what's called a guideline development group meeting, where I draft an evidence to decision framework, which is a standard document based on the grade working group, which is a Norwegian uh, body that has these standard documents and guidance on completing them. So I did what I usually do for WHO was I completed this evidence to decision framework. Now they're really interesting these frameworks because they include it's not just evidence on the effectiveness of a treatment 
They look at other things like the values and preferences of the people who will receive the treatment and the people who will give the treatment. And they also look at the resource implications of the treatment, its costs and cost effectiveness. And they look at the equity implications. Is it fair? And they look at acceptability and feasibility of the intervention. And only then is a recommendation made. So I've just been kind of operating in a sense of urgency now since the 26th of December. Yeah. Um, I invited Matt Hancock, politicians, I invited clinical specialists, I invited um, Pierre Corey and colleagues of his, and I invited some members of the public. Um, so I presented the evidence last Wednesday night in, in, the, in the form of an evidence to decision framework. This framework can be found on my website, by the way, which is, I think it's e-bmc.co.uk. It's a useful framework for any government to download. I wrote it for the British government, but it can be adapted for use by any government who wants to look at the big picture and to try and meet, reach a recommendation for their country. But what was interesting at the end of the meeting and not precipitated by me, by one of the other members of the group was the question, the question arose, so what do we think about ongoing trials given this evidence? Um, the best way for doctors or policymakers or anybody to figure out after looking at the evidence is to think to themselves, well, if my sister, husband, child was in hospital uh, with severe COVID, would I want them to receive ivermectin or not. Knowing that it's a safe drug that's been around for a long time, it costs nothing, and there's good evidence that it works. Um, and the general consensus is nobody in the room would not have given, not have wanted their sick relative friend to receive ivermectin, you know. So, and that's how we left it um, after that meeting. So none of the politicians came to the meeting and I still have had no response, not even an interest inquiry, not even a curiosity about the work that I have done. I've been trying to get a, a, an, an appointment with Matt Hancock or the government uh, in order to share these findings um, so that we can get ivermectin uh, into the country for British citizens as soon as possible. I think um, there's loads of different ways one could implement ivermectin. Um, I think firstly, one needs to get it to our healthcare workers and other frontline workers, and they should be prioritized, um, and then other vulnerable people. Um, I think it's the sort of thing that we could actually just post to people. We could post, you know, we could have little blister packs which have an ivermectin tablet, seven days of vitamin D, seven days of vitamin C, and seven days of zinc, kind of like a little kit that people can keep at home. And then if they expose to somebody uh, who has COVID or if they develop symptoms, they could take it. Um, you know, so so I think there's sort of lots of novel ways that one could look at implement implementing it, um, which actually have been done in other countries, for example, India. Mm. Ivermectin works. You, as a GP, are are entitled to use what is best for your for your patients. 
Well, there are lots of studies that could be done. For example, you know, ivermectin is not the only treatment out there. Uh, some countries are giving ivermectin plus doxycycline, and it's not clear whether, um, you know, that's better than giving ivermectin alone. And there's also, you know, along with um, giving vitamin D, vitamin C, and, and zinc. Um, so so um, I think there are studies that can be done looking at different treatment regimes. You know, is it good to take it once for, for uh, prophylaxis, for example, for healthcare workers, perhaps, is it once a week? Is it once a month? You know, th these sorts of things we don't know. Um, and, uh, and also for treatment, it might be that, you know, uh, one treatment regimen uh, might be better than another, particularly in severely ill people. There is much research to be done around ivermectin, but it's not about whether it works. We know it works, it should be used. Well, what would be useful is, is trying to work out what the best dose is for different types of uh, people. For example, health workers, um, you know, whether uh, they would benefit most from once a week or once a month, or, you know, what the sort of dosing regimen would be and um, and similarly for uh, severely ill patients, for example, it, it might be that um, one one a single dose is is not as good as three daily doses, or you know. So so there's there's sort of lots of research that can be done around dosing and also combination therapies, for example, you know whether it's better to give ivermectin with doxycycline or whether uh, it can be given with um, you know, on its own, so, or other treatments. So, you know, so there are comparative studies that can be done, but just not with a placebo. Keep in mind, while I'm excited, it's about we have the orthodox policymakers and opinion leaders within science and medicine, tens of thousands of them coming forward saying, hold on, you can't do this. We're physicians. Our, our, we, we've taken the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Everything you're promoting is doing harm. Everything. Keeping people in their homes when they're not sick and they, their immune systems are strong and they don't represent a threat to anyone, including themselves, that's a crime against humanity. You can't do this. So we have them speaking out and there's more and more and more of them coming forward every day. That's good. Now let's go to the old man in the chair. I see that David Lammy MP, a British politician, now says that the COVID-19 vaccine is safe and it works. He is the latest in a long and growing list of celebrities who are enthusiastically endorsing the vaccine. Though I rather fear they've probably spent as much time looking into the facts of the vaccine as I have spent learning about flower arranging. Just how Mr. Lammy claims to know that the vaccine is safe and works is beyond me. Let me tell you about Mr. David Lammy, MP. When he appeared on a television quiz show, he was asked to give the married name of scientists Mary and Pierre, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1903 for their work on radium. Lammy's reply was Antoinette. He got Marie Curie mixed up with Marie Antoinette when he was asked for the name of the building used as a prison by Cardinal Richelieu. He named Versailles instead of the Bastille. Versailles, for heaven's sakes, this is a man who served as a government minister. 
He was asked who succeeded to the English throne after Henry VIII and offered Henry VII, which showed a singular lack of mathematical skills. And he once criticised the BBC for wondering whether the smoke from the Vatican would be black or white. He seemed to think there was an element of racism in this well-known way of announcing if a new Pope had been elected. The thing about Lamy is that, to me, he doesn't seem aware of the extent of his ignorance. He knows that the COVID-19 vaccine is safe and works because he's read it on a beer mat. Or maybe he's been conducting secret private clinical trials in his purpose-built laboratory at the House of Commons. Maybe he's got a time machine which enables him to see into the future. No, I think he says the COVID-19 vaccine is safe and works because someone in the government says it's safe and it works. Lamy is supposed to be a member of Her Majesty's opposition. His job is to question the government and to protect his constituents, but he's rolled over and let Bill Gates, Prince Charles and Carl Schwab tickle his tummy. Incidentally, I'm well aware, by the way, that a decent part of the medical and scientific community doesn't believe that the stuff currently being promoted like a new brand of crisps isn't a vaccine at all. For the record, I agree with them. It's a form of gene therapy. I'd rather die than have that stuff in my body. But if I don't call it a vaccine, people who trust David Lammy, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the rest of the roll over, tickle my tummy and I'll say whatever you want me to say, celebrities won't know what I'm talking about. The fact is that even the World Health Organization only expects these vaccines to help reduce the extent of the symptoms. They're not promising that the vaccine will stop people getting COVID-19 and they're not expecting the vaccine to stop people spreading the infection if they do get it. If David Lammy and the Archbishop of Canterbury and all the rest had done a little research, they would know that. They would also know that the vaccine is experimental. The enthusiastic celebrities are promoting an experimental vaccine, or an experimental whatever it is. The United States National Library of Medicine published details of the vaccine program currently underway, and they say that the trial will last two years. Anyone having the vaccine is, therefore, taking part in an experiment. David Lammy and the Archbishop of Canterbury want your granny to take part in an experiment, and your granddad, and you too. The medicines agency in the UK knows it's an experiment. They advertise for special software so that they can keep track of the high number of adverse events they were expecting for two years. Of course, even after two years, we still don't, won't know what's going to happen to people who have the vaccine or what might happen to any children they might manage to have. It's all a mystery, though we do know that there are very real risks of changes to the immune system of those having the vaccine. But it's OK, David Lammy and the Archbishop of Canterbury say it's OK. They read it somewhere, or someone told them, or they saw a government advertisement. I bet you a pound to a peanut that they didn't actually look through the scores and scores of scientific papers before coming to that conclusion. I bet they didn't make up their own minds before telling millions of people to take the bloody vaccine. They just repeated the garbage they were told, and that's garbage in, garbage out. The fact is that no one, not even David Lammy, can possibly know if the vaccine is safe and effective because the trial's still underway.
You can look at the paper yourself. It's in the United States National Library of Medicine. Look for clinicaltrials.gov and you'll see on page 3 of 14 that the trial or study is expected to be completed on the 31st of January 2023. Can you understand that, David? It's an experiment. It's not over yet. No one knows what's going to happen in two years. But vaccine-loving Bill Gates, whose foundation is making a fortune, let us not forget, wants seven billion people to take part in the experiment. We do know, however, that thousands of people who've had the vaccine have died or been seriously injured by it. That's an undeniable fact. Elderly people in care homes are dying in huge numbers. We're told it's the infection. But it's not, of course. It's the damned vaccine they're being given. Now, let me tell you something else, and this should strike terror into every doctor, nurse or boy scout currently involved in giving or promoting these vaccines. The Nuremberg Code on Medical Experimentation, written in 1947, for reasons which I hope I don't have to explain, even to David Lamy, stated that explicit voluntary consent from patients is required for human experimentation. That means that patients must be told that they're taking part in a trial and they must be warned of all the possible adverse events. That's what informed consent means. How many doctors and nurses jabbing people with this stuff are telling patients that it's a trial? How many are giving people the information they need to make a valued judgment? I would guess somewhere close to none. And so legally, all those people giving vaccinations are war criminals. I'll repeat that. Legally, all those people giving vaccinations are war criminals. War criminals never think they're war criminals, of course. At the end of World War II, the Nazis mostly claimed that they were doing important work or just obeying orders, doing what they were told. None of that cuts the mustard, as they say. Just doing what you're told doesn't stop you being a war criminal. Let me be clear. Everyone giving the COVID-19 vaccines without explaining that it's, a, that it's an experiment and without listing all the possible adverse events, is a war criminal. That's not rhetoric, it's not opinion, it's fact. If you don't believe me, check it out for, yours, for yourself. War crimes, let me remind you, are still taken fairly seriously these days. A lot of doctors and nurses are going to find themselves in the dock, and the people who endorse the work they were doing may well find themselves there too. What's the punishment, I wonder, for aiding and promoting the activities of a war criminal? Meanwhile, those who believe David Lammy, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the other celebrities who've said that the COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective should know that the vaccine is turning out to be just as dangerous as I and other doctors warned it would be. It was obvious before Christmas that these vaccines would kill and injure millions, for the proof, watch my previous videos or read the transcripts on my website, vernoncolman.com. Governments and government agencies are, of course, saying that the people who are dying and suffering awful neurological problems just happen to die or fall ill. They're claiming that the vaccine isn't responsible. Ain't that odd? They claim that if you die within 28 days of a fake test for COVID-19, then you died of COVID-19. The bus 
had nothing to do with it. But they claim that if you die within 28 days of having a, a jab, then it's just a coincidence. What these people are? They lie, lie and lie again. This is genocide. When's the war gonna, world going to wake up? In America, courts have confirmed that deaths that occur 30 or even 50 years after an injury can be a result of the injury. To give but one example, in 1982, James Brady was shot by a man called Hinckley who tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Brady died in 2014 and his death was put down as a result of homicide or an event that happened in 1982. It isn't for government agencies to decide that deaths are coincidental. Coroners should be making the decision. There should be inquests on every patient who dies within 28 days or even longer of a vaccine. But there won't be. Meanwhile, we have a horrifying avalanche of evidence showing that these damned vaccines are killing and maiming people, all for a disease which has been proved to be no more dangerous than the annual flu. I have read many, many reports of the deaths caused by the vaccines. You can see details of the deaths on my website under the heading How Many Are the Vaccines Killing? The list also appears on Richie Allen's website. There's no doubt in my heart or in my mind this is global genocide. How much longer are people going to be silent? How many need to die? How many need to be crippled? When will people like David Lammy admit that they're wrong and stop promoting a deadly vaccine? The evidence is incredible. I've got some papers here. A man and woman in South Dakota die a day after getting COVID vaccines. 32 nursing home residents die after COVID vaccines. Um, Pemberley House care home deaths not related to a vaccine. Oh no, of course they weren't. John Hopkins scientist, a medical certainty. Pfizer vaccine caused death of Florida doctor. 181 dead in US during two week period from experimental COVID injections. Pfizer COVID vaccine shows alarming evidence of pathogenic priming in older adults. Do you know what pathogenic priming is, David Lammy? Do you know what it means? Do you know how evil it can be? Do you know how dangerous pathogenic priming? Do some bloody research. The World Health Organization says no guarantee COVID vaccines will prevent people being infected. California man dies several hours after vaccine. Coronavirus kills dozens at care homes. A letter of warning to the FDA, caution needed. Regulator report receives 81 reports. Nursing home wh whistleblower, seniors are dying like flies. Norway investigates 23 deaths. 33 elderly people dead after first dose. 55 Americans have died following mRNA in injection. Norway, more deaths. Chinese health experts called to suspend Pfizer vaccine. Four people died and 240 got COVID-19 in Israel after being injected. COVID-19 outbreak at nursing home infects 137 residents and kills 24. Seizures and paralysis due to encephalomyelitis. Two people in India die. And so on and so on and so on. Portuguese health workers died. Ten dead. Morbidity and mortality weekly report. That thick. David Lamy. All those people who are allowing this. I'm not going to record this again. Thank you for watching An Old Man in a Chair. The Old Man in the Chair. Powerful.
honest, just telling the truth. Now we're going to go to a site that is used by orthodox physicians and scientists all over the world. It's called Science-Based Medicine. And you're going to hear comments coming, and all these comments are coming from people who are very orthodox. Let's hear what they have to say because they're going to break it down in detail about the greed, the self-interest, so that the heart of all this. Dr. Choudhury Hassan, an associate clinical professor working for Mount Sinai Health System in New York, and Pauline Francisca Gomez, a research fellow with Shaman Foundation in Bangladesh, recently authored a piece arguing that mounting evidence supports ivermectin as a possible treatment against the novel coronavirus. Now, although there have been a couple of vaccines authorized under emergency use, up to 40% of the American public are leery of accepting this as an option in the short run. Little is known of the long-term benefit of these experimental vaccines other than after a few months of data covering just a couple hundred individuals that fell ill to the pathogen, no one can say the true efficacy nor how long immunity is ensured, if at all. Moreover, after $12.5 billion of public expenditure involving Operation Warp Speed, there is little to show in the form of therapies as the novel monoclonal antibodies approved under experimental use also raised just as many issues as they do answers. But as we here at Trial Site News have consistently published, there is an existing FDA-approved drug, ivermectin, used by billions annually to fight parasites. That evidence is considerable promise, even as a pre-exposure prophylaxis targeting COVID-19. However, there are those who believe it's too good to be true. After all, how could so many smart people in the global power centers of research and regulatory affairs, both in America and in Europe, not have seen this coming? At the same time, you have the general media doing nominal coverage at best, even going so far as to bash those that even dare to question the current narrative about COVID-19. So let's take a look at the pre-exposure prophylaxis potential. Professor Hassan isn't a lightweight. The New York cardiologist and research co-author noted that the results of an important study out of Bangladesh Medical College and Shaman Foundation under the guidance of Dr. Tarek Alam, professor and head of medicine department in Bangladesh Medical College and investigator for the recent study that we covered here at Trial Site News and published in the European Journal of Medical and Health Sciences back on December 15th. And Dr. Alam has also been interviewed by us here at Trial Site News a couple of times as well. Now, in this study centering on healthcare workers in Bangladesh, of 118 healthcare workers, 44 out of 60, or 73.3%, did not receive a regular dose of ivermectin and contracted the novel coronavirus. Those that did take the PrEP regimen did better. Only 4 out of 58, or 6.9%, went on to become ill. Now, this you can add to many other studies that research elites in America and Europe question as shaky science, such as Dr. Alam and Dr. Murshed's study showing great efficacy of what is known in Bangladesh as the people's medicine, the combination of ivermectin and doxycycline to treat COVID-19 patients. Now, the New York and DACA-based researchers also refer to other research, such as the work of Dr. Pierre Corey of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, or the FLCCC. 
and their comprehensive meta-analysis showcasing the evidence for ivermectin's efficacy against COVID-19. They also brought up in the recent article by Dr. Hassan and Ms. Gomez were studies from Argentina, India, France, Egypt, and of course, Bangladesh. The authors also referred to the ICON study out of Broward County, Florida, which was done by Dr. Jean-Jacques Reiter with Juliana sapelowitz Reiter. Now, of the 173 patients at four hospitals during the ICON study who were given ivermectin, they experienced a far lower mortality rate of 39% of those in a group of 107 patients who weren't given the antiparasitic medication, which had a 81% death rate. Now, we here at TrialSite News discovered ivermectin by simply chronicling study after study that evidenced some form of positive result for our viewership. Journalists and analysts associated with TrialSite News have wondered why more people weren't interested. Why weren't research agencies tasked with looking at repurposing existing approved drugs not curious? Why was the mainstream media so silent? Why was there so much hostility vented at anyone that dared suggest a different narrative? Well, the answer, it does appear to be all about money. You see, months after the Monash University findings that ivermectin in a lab cell culture obliterated COVID-19, the most powerful, well-endowed research agencies were working with commercial pharma to accelerate vaccines and monoclonal antibodies therapies, as well as antivirals such as remdesivir. So, the research train had left the station, and stopping everything to look at some cheap, widely available drug used almost exclusively in the third world didn't seem to give anyone pause. And besides, too much capital was now committed anyway. The race for a vaccine and high-end monoclonal antibodies, as well as commercial antivirals, was on, and the NIH and Big Pharma would save the day. But. That led to what we believe was another key rationale for the avoidance of any ivermectin investigation pure ego-driven hubris. Now, although the NIH is full of wonderful, committed, brilliant people as an institution, it, along with the FDA under the existing politically charged environment, turned or transformed the research endeavor into an economic mission, surrounded by a political circus. And so, research centers and their leadership hunkered down and centered activity on what would, in their minds, most likely lead to the best outcome. Well, that's our program for today. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm in my study here. This is where I do my research and have hundreds of articles every day that I'm going through and writing manuscripts. I look forward to sharing more from you. I look forward to sharing more with you uh, in the upcoming days. Don't forget, uh, go to prn.fm and sign up for the webinar on getting off the grid looking to a new future, but taking the best of the past with you. Have a nice day.